I was thinking Gilligan's Island. So we were pretty much on the same character, same page there, brother. Uh, welcome again this morning to a place uh, dedicated to the Lord, and I'm so glad that all of you are, are here today. Anybody here ever bowl in their lifetime? Maybe you belong to a bowling league, perhaps? Uh, when I was a kid in student ministry at church that, that I grew up in, we used to go at least once a year to what was then called Southland Lanes, and we would have an all-night bowling uh, night at New Year's Eve or, or during the holiday. We'd start at 8 o'clock in the evening, go all the way to 8 o'clock the next morning. As a teenager, it was just fantastic. Now, as an adult, that doesn't sound very fun to me, actually. Um, but I proved during those nights that, that I could bowl anywhere between a 200 and a 62. I mean, it, it was so irregular and up and down. Well, the last time I bowled was with Emma and her boyfriend in Bristol, Tennessee, at a place called Uncle Buck's Bowling Alley, and it looked like this. It was in a, um, a Bass Pro Shop. And I have to tell you, it, it was not a pretty picture. I think my average that night was 75. Uh, it, it was just hard because we had the last lane, which was a coral wall beside me. And I kept bumping into the coral wall before I'd let the ball go. And oftentimes, it almost go to the lane beside me. And I've got to tell you, it is hard to bowl when you've got one eye on the bowling alley lane and one eye on the boyfriend that your girlfriend brought with her to the bowling alley. Uh, some of you dads, you know what I'm talking about. And I have to tell you, I don't know proper bowling technique. I don't know how to spin the ball for maximum power. Uh, I don't know the proper body motion or the follow-through and all that stuff. In fact, most that I know of bowling came from watching the Flintstones as a kid. But the most important part about bowling, and every professional will agree, is you actually have to pick up the ball and step up to the line and let it go. And the reason that I have compelled to do this series is because in conversations with so many of you, I realize that, that even those of us who say that we're followers of Jesus Christ, we carry around some awfully heavy stuff. And it's just wreaking havoc in our lives on a daily basis. And it affects us emotionally, physically, relationally. It affects the way that we do work at our job. It affects the way we parent. It affects the way we make decisions. It affects how we're able to, to give and accept love. And the stuff we refuse or that we struggle with just letting go of, it makes us sick. You know, originally the word for disease simply meant the lack of peace. And I find this interesting that the way back before scientific research had ever been done, there was an understanding by the ancients that when a person was not at peace, well, it was more than just a medical issue. It was a spiritual issue. It was an emotional issue. It was an intellectual issue because they're all interconnected. It's how God wired us up. How he made us that our body, soul, and spirit, and mind would all be connected. And when we have peace, and we're working on all cylinders, things are just wonderful. But when we're not, we struggle fulfilling the command that Jesus gave in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37. When he said this, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And it's hard to do that when we're not clicking on all cylinders. Now, I'm not saying that all disease is a result, obviously, of spiritual or emotional lack of health, but we're finding 
that the things that you and I hold on to, the things that we refuse to let go of, they affect us deeply. In fact, there are things that target specific organs in our body. We already know the effect of stress and anxiety upon our heart. But did you know that if if you harbor resentment in your heart, if you hold on to bitterness in your life, that it targets your liver, your colon, your immune system, it affects your metabolism, it speeds up heart disease, and it just ages all of us prematurely. So can you see why Jesus would make a big deal about you and I forgiving each other? It's why it says in Proverbs 14.30 that a, a heart at peace will give life to the body, but envy will rot the bones. And if we're harboring unconfessed sin or habits or attitudes within our lives, the psalmist said in Psalm 38.3, there's no soundness in my bones because of my sin. When our heart's not right with the Lord, everything is affected. There's a book out of research called The Body Keeps Score, and I love the name of that. But it says this, traumatized people chronically feel unsafe inside their own bodies. The past is alive in the form of a gnawing interior discomfort. Their bodies are constantly bombarded by visceral warning signs, and in an attempt to control these processes, they often become expert at ignoring their gut feelings and in numbing awareness of what is played out inside. In short, they learn to hide from themselves. And that's why we always say to one another that you're only as sick as your secrets because your body really does keep the score. And what I really want you to know today and through this series, what I really want you to catch is what Jesus spoke of in John 10.10 when he said, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it to the full. You see, when Jesus spoke those words, he wasn't just talking about heaven. He was saying that no matter what happens in this crazy, busy, broken, fallen, diseased world, you and I can really walk around in hope. We can really walk around in freedom and honesty and in transparency. We can really live lives of courage and security and confidence and joy and peace. And so in this series, I'm going to attack four destructive things. And I believe if you could let go of these four things in your life with the power of the Holy Spirit, that a whole bunch of us could not only become those who walk free, we could become distributors of the freedom we have in Christ. And we could be healthier on so many different levels and in so many different ways. We want to reach the point. You see, what we can say like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.13, brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself as yet to have taken hold of it, but this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So we're going to talk about anxiety We're going to talk about fear. We're going to talk about envy. And today, I want to tackle one of the most destructive things in a believer's life. I want to talk about a thing called shame. I'm telling you, if you hold on to shame within your life, it will take you out. 
Now, we've talked before about how guilt and shame are, are so closely related. They're like first cousins. And guilt, from God's perspective, it can be a very good thing. It can be like that check engine light on the dashboard of your car that lights up to let you know that something's not right under the hood. God can use good guilt to, to rebuild broken relationships in our lives. He can use it to to do some really good character stuff from the inside out of us. But if you and I ignore it and we stuff it down, if we refuse to face our guilt and we refuse to deal with it and we will not let it go, well, then it kind of morphs into its evil cousin, shame. Someone once said, shame is a soul-eating emotion. And it's true. Haven't, Haven't you experienced that? Haven't you found that to be true? I mean, here's the deal. You feel guilt because of something that you did. But you feel shame because of something that you are. And can you see how that starts to attack your core identity? Shame will redefine you to you. You no longer see yourself as someone who is unique, someone who's priceless, somebody who is a deeply loved child of God. You become to see yourself as one who's not worthy, someone who's never enough. And when our true identity gets hacked, we stop believing in our God-given creative worthiness and the self-talk begins, I am so stupid. I, I, I am so much of a failure. I am so unloved and unlovable. I am so unwanted. And then we start to believe in the lies that begin with the phrase, I'll be worthy if. Yeah, I'll be worthy if I can lose that extra 20 pounds. I'll be worthy if I can just have a baby. I'll be worthy if I can stay sober. I'll be worthy if everybody acknowledges that I'm a good parent. I'll be worthy if I can pass this class with an A. I'll be worthy if I qualify for assistance or a scholarship. I'll be worthy if they call me back to go out on a date. I'll be worthy if my parents finally approve of me. I'll be worthy if I can look perfect, act perfect, just be perfect. Because the truth is, I'm not good enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not pretty enough, smart enough, creative enough, organized enough. I'm just not enough. And God, you may have made other people special, But when you made me, you made me a little less than them. No one else has done the kinds of things that I've done. No one else is as messed up as I am. No one else is as bad as me. Nobody else feels as broken as I feel. No one else has the same type of dysfunctional home or family or marriage or story that I've had. And if people really knew my past, If they knew my secrets, then they would just push me aside like everyone else in my life forever. And we hide in our shame. You see, shame hacks our true identity as those deeply loved children of the Most High God. But we let it. We allow it. And it wreaks havoc in our mind, in our soul, and in our body. I will never forget a Christ in Youth conference that I got to go to at Milligan College. I only got to be there for part of the time, and uh, someone passed away in my church, and I had to go back, and my father-in-law stepped in to, to, to be with the kids there. 
But we were packed into this old, worship, or old chapel on the college campus. And the worship leader for the week was a little-known guy by the name of David Crowder. And now you all know him probably as the David Crowder band and all his songs. And, I mean, it, it was loud, it was, but it was exciting. We had about 750 young people packed into this place. And, I mean, they were jumping up and down, praising the Lord. They'd rush the stage. But one of the things that they did, when these 700, and, and by the way, the speaker, Maury, Norma, it was Mike Baker. I don't know if you remember that or not. One of the, uh, my colleagues from a long, long time ago. One of the things they did, though, when these 750 young people checked in is they gave them a deeply personal questionnaire that you could just check yes or no to the answers of. 25 questions. And they would ask, do you come from a divorced family? Yes or no. Um, they had statements like, I have been singled out in school because I'm a Christian. Yes or no. Uh, I struggle with loneliness, yes or no. They had things like, I struggle with pornography, yes or no. And they would check these things. And what they did was they said, we don't want you to sign these. Don't put your name on these things. We're just going to collect them. And they did. Well, on one of the first nights when Mike got up to do his thing, he led the worship service. And again, the kids were all excited. He said, I want you all to sit down. He said, what we're going to do now is we're going to pass out these surveys. They're not signed. You're not going to get yours. You're going to get somebody else's. And I'm going to go through this. And as I read each one of these, if somebody has checked yes on your form, I want you to stand up. Now, remember, you're not standing up for you. You're standing up for the person who filled out the survey. And then he began. Within about five, ten minutes, you could see almost every sponsor that had come there with a group of young people were crying. Mike was having a tough time actually getting through things as well. It was one of the most powerful things I've seen done in a long time as he led question after deeply personal question to see all these students standing up for different things. And what was the most heartbreaking is one of the questions was, I see God as someone who doesn't love me. And about 75% of those 750 students stood up. And he said, guys, I want you to look around and see. Do you see how most of us really are like the rest of us? And I hope you can see this is a safe place where you're not alone in your struggle. You're not the only one dealing with what you deal with. You're not the only one who thinks the thoughts that you think. You're not the only one that has had these experiences. That is a lie of the enemy, our accuser, And he's trying to spin it on you because your struggles were never meant to define you. And you need to embrace your true identity as a treasured child of the most high gods. And friend, I say to you today that your shame, you've just got to step up to the line and let it go because you are a deeply loved child of God. The cross of Jesus Christ proves that you are enough that you are worthy before him, you are priceless to him, and that is who you are. I want you to see just a sampling about what God says about you and your shame. And I want to encourage you to write these scriptures down on that that bulletin insert you have. Maybe you could take a, a screenshot of some of these things up on the screen. But I want you to internalize these as if your self worth depends upon it. You see, you've got to know these things. This is what the Lord thinks about us, what he's planned for us.
It began in Genesis 2.25 when it said Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Psalm 34.5, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Look to the Lord. Isaiah 54.4, don't be afraid. You'll not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have drawn you with an unfailing kindness. Isaiah 43.25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Isaiah 44.22, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud. Your sins, like the morning mist, return to me because I have redeemed you. Hebrews 10, 17. Therefore, he adds, their sins and lawless acts I'll remember no more. I love this one. This is actually Olivia's favorite verse in the New Testament. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Therefore, since there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And one of my favorites, 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we would be called the children of God. And that, that is what we are. Jesus said, when you know that, when you internalize that, when you really know this kind of truth, when you know him as the capital T truth, then the truth will set you free. Now, I want to give you a few practical handles that you can carry with you uh, throughout this series and, and really, hopefully, throughout your entire life. Because God's design for us is to live a shameless life. Most of you listen to Christian radio uh, here in town. Maybe you listen to Air One or K-Love. Uh, you might have heard the story of Keith Repult. And Keith Repult told his story recently on his uh, deliverance from addictions to, to drugs and alcohol and the dark world of pornography. Up until the time he came to Christ, he was the second largest distributor of porn in the U.S. And it's so amazing to hear what God has done in his life and the transformation that's taken place within his life. He, he learned the value of just becoming raw and honest before God, and he's so grateful for God's grace because God could even save someone like him. But Keith took a huge risk of vulnerability to leave that life. And he put his story out there for all the world to see in a book that's about hope and grace. And he gives some practical steps to help anybody resurface from shame. And, and that's what I want to give to you this morning. It's a book called Just Breathe. And the little byline of it is, all stories redeemable, all brokenness repairable, all addictions breakable. I like that. And basically what that means, if you've ever had a time in your life where you've looked at your situation and you thought, man, there is just no hope for me, I want to give you this acrostic this morning that comes from the word breathe, B-R-E-A-T-H-E. And I want you to write those on that, that insert in your bulletin because I'm going to give you something for each of those letters this morning. And this is about letting go and walking in the life that Christ has for each of us. And I thought it might be helpful to give you these resurfacing from shame in life and letting go because in truth, uh, we are all recovering from something, uh, especially shame-based living. And with God's help, I think there's a boundless pathway to that life here. Now, the B 
of breathe stands for embracing brokenness. Embracing brokenness. You see, there's got to be a point that we all come to in life where we just embrace that. We have to say amen to the first words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 3, when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. What he was saying is, is blessed are those who are spiritually busted, who spiritually turn their pockets inside out and have nothing but pocket lint, and they know it. Blessed are those who recognize their need for God, and you humble yourself, you take a deep breath, and you acknowledge how desperately your soul, how desperately your life, life needs him. And I've learned that I can never make any kind of lasting change in this world, in my life, without God's help. Well, the R stands, and breathe stands for relinquishing control. Relinquishing control. And honestly, it's time for some of you this morning, it's time for all of us to finally get off the throne of our life. It's time to say, God, I want you to take your chief seat. I want you to take control. I invite you, take the lead in my relationships. Take the lead in my plans or take the lead in my thoughts. And I've learned that if you're entirely ready to surrender control of your life and your will to the love and care of Christ, then our sin, which is a huge deal, is forgiven and our shame is wiped out. And you begin the process of becoming a brand new person who lives with purpose and clarity and intensity under the power and the leadership of the unfailing grace and love of God. Well, the first E in the word breathe stands for evaluating myself. Evaluating myself with a fearless honesty. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a moment because I, I think that's really key. But the next one is A, and the A stands for making amends. Making amends. I heard about a man who went back to his hometown and he had to walk up to an abusive stepfather that helped raise him and he had to forgive him face to face. He went to the cemetery and he spoke out loud at the headstones of people that he knew had sinned against him and people that he had sinned against. He went to a guy when he was 17 years old, he stole $100 from him, and he knocked on this guy's door, and the guy was just shocked to see him. He hadn't seen him in over a score of years. And he told this guy what he had done, and the guy had never known that he had done this. And he said, well, that happened back when I was 17. He said, I- I'm 53 now, and so with interest for all those years, it's this much, and here's what I owe you. It wasn't easy. But he learned that forgiveness is setting the prisoner free only to discover that you were the prisoner. Well, the TH in the word breathe stands for thinking a whole new way. Thinking a whole new way. You know, the Bible calls this renewing your mind. Now, understand, God's job is always transformation. You cannot transform your life. Only God can do that from the inside out. But we become engaged in renewing our mind. And I can compare that to, to re-wallpapering your mind. Anybody here ever stripped wallpaper in a house? Jim, you ever stripped wallpaper before? Yeah, when we lived in Huntington, Indiana, my mother and father-in-law that are here this morning, and Cheryl and I, we went out and bought one of those things called a tire claw. You ever use one of those, Jim? 
It's got all the little blades in it, and you scroll it all over the wall to kind of tear up the paper. And then we bought this, this DAP product that you spray on it, and it loosens the glue up behind the wallpaper. And then you got to either peel or take a scraper and get it off without tearing the paper off the drywall. And it is just a huge headache. It is a huge mess to do that. And we had to do that in several rooms in our house. Scraping off old wallpaper and remodeling and stuff. Is, is there ever a worse job than that, honestly? I think if, you, if I ever finish reading Dante's book on the inferno, on his levels of hell, that's probably the eighth level of hell, scraping wallpaper off at an outlet mall or something. I mean, but we need to change our mind by resurfacing the walls of our mind and putting up some of the scriptures that, that we read earlier or some of the scriptures that God speaks to us daily as we study his word and as we take off the old junk and we, we strip it and we put on this brand new mindset, we find that we can breathe in Christ and we find shame fleeing. Well, the last E of breathe stands for encouraging others with my life and story. You let what Paul would call to the people at Colossae, the good news of Christ in you, the hope of glory, seep into other people's stories. You let God recycle the pain and the heartache and the experiences that you've endured in this life to comfort and challenge and strengthen others around you. You let the good news of your spiritual awakening and your ever-changing life be used by God in someone else's life. You live beyond yourself and you share your faith. It's like the old saying, Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. And that, that's a path that each of us can take. Now I want to go back to that, that first E, and I'll wrap things up here this morning. Evaluating myself with fearless honesty. And, and the reason I want to expand on that is because I think this is so huge when it comes to dealing with shame. You see, when we have a story of our life before us, we have to own our story, or our story will own us. Again, I find it coincidental when neuroscience acknowledges what God's word has taught for thousands of years, when it says the only way to change is by becoming aware of what's going on inside of us. It's what AA calls a, taking a fearless moral inventory, and it's where you pray, like David did in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's where you come before God and you say, God, what's true about me? What am I hanging on to that, that needs to let go? What's the truth about my pain? What's the truth about my bitterness? What's the truth about the character defects, God? that you need to work, go to work on inside of me and in my life. What's the root of my anger? God, take me to the root of my avoidance. Take me to the root of, of what I might call OCD and others call a push towards perfectionism. Take me to the root of my pride. Take me to the root of my guilt. God, would you take me to the root of my shame, my feelings of inadequacy, my feelings of never being enough? And I can warn you right now that if you honestly do that, if you honestly assess yourself, shame will be right there close at hand to try to prevent it. 
because shame corrodes the very part of you that believes that a person like you or me could ever change in the first place. And so we stuff it down. Dr. David Belgium estimated 75% of the people that are hospitalized today for physical illness actually have illness rooted in emotional problems. This is actually what he wrote. He wrote this. Their physical symptoms and breakdowns are for many their involuntary confessions of guilt. Hmm. Involuntary confessions of guilt. You know, the Bible said in Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals their sins doesn't prosper. Does not prosper. And we push it down and has a variety of ways to come out. Think back to when you were in the eighth or ninth grade, likely. I think that's how old I was. When I was introduced to Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Telltale Heart. Remember that story? I mean, Edgar Allan Poe, he could write some pretty dark stuff, right? And it's a story about a man who commits a murder and supposedly buries his victim in the basement of his house. And wherever he goes in his house, he's, he's haunted by this relentless thump, 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 thump. Thump, thump. And it, it just literally drives him insane. Well, here's the spoiler alert of the story, if you haven't read it. It's not coming from the basement. That thump, 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 thump is actually coming from his own chest. It's his own heartbeat that he hears. It's that unresolved shame, unresolved guilt gnawing at him. You might recall the story of King David in the Old Testament. King David has an affair, and he covers it up. He abuses his power as a king and has her husband reassigned to the front lines where he orchestrates his execution by enemy combatants. And it's just a horrible story, a tangled web of deceit and of sinfulness in the king's life. But David does this, and his guilt and his shame, it's just eating him alive. And King David can hear the thump, 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 thump of his own heartbeat. And eventually, because of the love of a good man, a good prophet named Nathan, and because of David's authenticity, his vulnerability before God, he gets to the point where he just pours out his heart in that prayer. Search me, God. Know my heart. See if there is any anxious way within me. Test me and lead me in the way of life everlasting. And look what he writes in Psalm 32, verse 1. Psalm 32, 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You forgave me. Your kindness, your mercy, your grace trumped it all. You see, David had to get to the point where he owned his story before his story owned him. And when we are open before God, we find freedom. We find grace and acceptance and unfailing love. And for some of us, it's not visiting the things that we've done, but revisiting the things that were done to us by someone else. 
or maybe withheld from us even while we were growing up. You know, reality TV, uh, there, there's a lot of reality TV shows out there. Some of them are good, but, but a bunch of them are just really dumb if you've ever been a channel surfer. Uh, and then there are some of those that are just outright painful. You ever seen Bridezilla's? Susan, you can't answer that. Okay? Uh, you, you ever see toddlers and tiaras or dance moms and what they put their kids through? You, what about Swamp Dad? You ever seen that one? Yeah, I made that one up. It just sounds like a good show, doesn't it? You know, jump in there and grab that gator, boy. You know? But there's just so much pressure on kids. And if you put pressure on kids, here's what, what I've learned. They will do whatever it takes to receive approval. Whatever it takes to receive acceptance from you. And so, if they have to produce, they have to compete, they have to excel, whatever it takes, whatever it costs, they will do it. Fast forward into adulthood for them. And what do you see? They are still chasing Still striving, still producing, still performing, still living in that shameful cycle of I am not enough and I've never been enough. Living life for the approval of mom and dad and sometimes they're not even there anymore. And friends, living for the approval of anyone other than God is the single most destructive thing for mental illness to physical problems. It's a fierce reminder too of the tremendous ministry we have as grandparents, as parents, as workers with children during VBS as well, to let young people know what God thinks of them. It's also telling of us that if we don't deal with our own story and our own past, if we don't let go of the shame, of all the performance and striving and and all the I'll show you and bitterness, then our story will own us. And so I want to close by asking, do you feel like God stirred this in you before? This whole idea of shame. Would you take the risk and tell somebody? Get vulnerable with other people, and if not for you, for them, to know that they're not alone, that they share the struggle as well? Would you get honest with God and look and research and expose yourself to his unfailing love. If you're tired of saying, you know, I'm sick of carrying this weight around with me, then would you pray, Lord, would you help me write a new story? Shame towers over us and tells us we're defective. Grace tells us we're valuable. Shame's greatest weapon is the fear of judgment. Grace's greatest weapon is unconditional love. Shame says that I'm flawed and thus unacceptable. Grace says that even though I am flawed, I'm absolutely priceless. Shame believes the opinion of the crowd is all that matters. Grace believes the opinion of God is all that matters. Shame makes us hide. Grace makes us free. Shame is the language of the identity thief. Grace is the language of Jesus who says you're worthy now right this minute. So let me love you. And let it go. I'm going to ask you to stay on me this morning. And I want to share with you Ephesians 4.22. Ephesians 4.22 says this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put it away. Pack it up. 
be done with it. Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. You've been lied to long enough by the world. You've been lied to long enough by Satan. It's his language. And you've been lied long enough to by you. And it says, be made new in the attitude of your minds. Put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And I've got to say, are you ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning grateful for the life that that you've given us. A life to be lived for you and a life to be lived in the awareness that God, it's only your opinion that really matters over our life. So forgive us for the times that we have lived for less, that we have strove for the approval of our spouses or our children or our parents or even of other Christians. Father, we want to live for your honor, your glory, your acceptance and your love. And God, I thank you for being a patient God. You've watched us through the struggle. You've preserved our life to this moment so that we can finally say, Lord, I need you. Strengthen me to let it go. Let me release it to you so that I can live in the abundant and free life that you have given for me. Father, for the person this morning that needs to make that decision, I just ask you to give them courage. Empower them by your spirit that has convicted their heart of their sinfulness to just accept you as their Lord and Savior. Help them start their new life by being washed in the waters of baptism behind me and accepting the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of your Holy Spirit with which everything will be transformed. For those of us who are believers, Father, again, I just ask that you forgive us for the times we try to live life in our own strength and by our own plan. There's no coincidences in our life. And truly, there's no accidents. Because everything that we go through, Father, you have the ability to transform as well. We're yours. You're concerned about us from the greatest to the smallest of things. And we love you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name.